Welcome to this webinar series, Physical Activity Research Podcast and International Society for Physical Activity and Health, ISPA, have started collaboration. We have edited their webinars to audio-only podcast versions, so you can listen them also on the go. Our mission is to advance science and share scientific knowledge, so if your organization has relevant webinars or lectures and would like to get more audience to them, please let us know. But without further ado, let's jump to the webinar. Okay, I would like to move on to a question from Rona here. Um, and I think she, she raises a really important point. We, we Surveillance and trend data and how thing, how we're doing over time at, at, at how our policies are affecting physical activity is important. And if we move away, almost the same way as every time we change the question that we ask, it's really hard to track physical activity. So um, maybe if I throw this first of all to Karen, um, what about the issue of surveillance and how device-based measurement might influence or affect that? Thanks, Marie, and thanks, Rona, for the question. So I think uh, a couple of things to say. So obviously, we don't want to lose our trend data. Um, so even if the surveillance tool that we use doesn't mirror the guidelines, it because the guidelines change, it does allow us to at least monitor progress over time. And I think that that's really important. Um, more important than the proportion of the population that meet a threshold or not. I think if we can see progress, I think that that's, that's a really useful indicator. I also think that if we develop guidelines based on devices, we may need to consider using devices for surveillance. I think it, if the we're not in a position at the moment where guidelines will be purely device-based and maybe we will never reach that point. But if the guidelines are heavily informed by device-based data, and we know those data are different to what we get from self-report, I think it would be inappropriate to undertake surveillance using self-report of device-based guidelines. So that's going to throw up a number of challenges in terms of how we collect device-based data at scale, whether it's using research-grade devices, whether it's using mobile phones, you know, all different methods are available. And to reiterate Jacob's point, we really need to ensure that we don't widen disparities between what we know about physical activity participation in high-income countries versus other settings. And I know that that's a key agenda, <clears throat> sorry, for PROPAS is to reach more low middle income countries. And that's one of the reasons why ISPA partnered with PROPAS to try and make sure that we don't neglect those low income countries as we move forward with this agenda, because obviously the data does come from Australia, the US and the UK or Europe. OK, thank you, Karen. Jasper, are you going to maybe come in there? Yes, I could, but I was... Um... Thinking about your uh, your the, oh, the, the next topic you okay. wanted to, uh, okay. to start. Okay, okay, thank so, you. Uh, I'm, I'm following a chat and I'm following questions and answers. So yeah, we're going to move now then on to the the question that Ray is raised by Sonia, and Sonia's asking really about people with chronic conditions because of course the guidelines are meant for them as well. But if we take the device based measurement at a single time point when they are needing to be inactive because of their condition or unable to be as active, um, what, 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 how, how might that um, cause us a problem? So 
Jasper, this is the one I think you're going to come in on. Yes. So I, I think that's a very valid point. And, and probably it's even more important to think of this when you are talking about people with a, a chronic condition or people that are recovering from an operation or any sort of other big life things that mean that their activity levels fluctuate over weeks or over months or over the year. Um, so that's a, another perspective of measuring where obviously in a survey you can ask back a year and even though there's a recall bias you can still get some information looking back longer in time. But then, um, as Manas also mentioned, and some of the questions also hinted at, um, with a lot of the consumer devices, yes, they might not be perfect measurements, but one of the big advantages of them is that they will give you measurements over a very long period of time. So again, there might be opportunities there, especially for these groups where this measuring over months or years, perhaps even, is important we might be looking at, well, okay, well, instead of a device that really has a very, very high measurement validity, perhaps go to a device that has a reasonable measurement validity, but can be worn for much longer. Um, so there are, again, things to, to consider there. But I agree very much with the point that one time point uh, is often not enough. Okay, brilliant. And uh, Manos and Jacob, I think, are going to come in on this point. Uh, I would like to add to uh, Jasper's uh, about long-term monitoring, which I totally agree is critical for such a population, uh, such population groups. But uh, uh, we're not limited uh, to uh, consumer wearables because there are research wearables. We are testing actually now a device from a manufacturer called Sense in Denmark, as it happens, from Denmark, uh, which can measure 22 continuous weeks. Not only that, it uh, communicates via Bluetooth. The accelerometry uh, signal communicate, is communicated to the smartphone and from the smartphone automatically to the cloud for up to 22 continuous weeks. So we will see in the next few years, I think we, we're going to see big things when it comes to the measurement and overcoming uh, uh, limitations. Like this is a brilliant example that uh, uh, Sonia gave us the opportunity to, to comment on. Thank you. Thanks. Jacob. Yeah, that's going back to uh, people with uh, chronic conditions. I think this is a, a, an area where it will be really interesting to see if the devices provide the same level of kind of a homogeneity in the guidelines that we have based on self-report. Because right now, the, the guidelines are the same for people with and or without chronic conditions. But there's a lot about perception of physical activity. And, and if you have a chronic condition, you may perceive physical activity differently uh, if you don't have chronic conditions. So um, I'm very curious, and I think there'll be a lot of uh, development in maybe tailored uh, guidelines for people with chronic conditions, also with their specific uh, comorbidity um, outcomes. So I, I think this is an area where we need to expand with devices, and we'll see a lot of interesting um, data in the future. That, that, that's my expectation. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Thank you Jacob. I'm going to move across because we've had a couple of questions on sleep. So um, uh, one of the comments I think that was useful here was to talk about the, the massive um, sleep research community that probably also have uh, activity in their data that they may they might not be overly interested in. So thank you for that comment. But the, the two questions that came up were, how should we deal with naps in, in, in sleep data? And also the fact that many of us, myself included this morning, as I got up 
very early. Uh, my phone tells me I didn't sleep enough or I, 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 did, I didn't sleep deep enough or whatever. How do we, how might we use some of that data that's available and also the issue of naps? Anne-Marie, can I start with you on that one? Yeah, so I, I uh, in preparation for, the, for my presentation, I looked at um, indeed also naps, how well uh, accelerometers capture it. Well, the answer is not good. Um, so I think that's that's a problem that we really uh, do not capture naps very well with accelerometers. Um, uh, so I think we need either a combination with diary data or uh, or it's it's difficult to capture it otherwise. Yeah. Okay, and and a nice comment in there from from Gemma um, here in Scotland to say that you know we've now finally come to an agreement in Europe about standard phone charging cables so that when we change phones we have a standard cable um, and, and is there a way that we could advocate perhaps with the phone companies and, and tech companies so that we have a standard um, measurement of, of, of physical activity in phones um, now there's a task for somebody to take on the big phone producers good luck. <laughs> But a good, a really good suggestion. Anyone else from the panel want to come in on sleep? Yes, I was just going to add that I think that there's a whole community of sleep researchers out there. And I one reason why we didn't consider sleep in the WHO guidelines was that we didn't have sleep experts on the panel and there's separate sleep guidelines. So I think that when we look to review the guidelines in future, we should make sure that we are engaging with the experts in sleep. It's obviously great that we're becoming experts in sleep, but we shouldn't forget that there's, you know, there's people that have been doing this stuff for a long time and they're probably much more advanced than we are in how we measure this stuff and what it means for health. So, I, yeah, I think that there's a whole community there that we could be working more closely with. Peter. Um, I just wanted to ask about, um, there's a question in the chat earlier about incorporating sleep into the guidelines and whether this uh, people view this as kind of a nanny state where we're now telling people what to do 24 hours a day. You know, we've got the physical activity, sedentary behavior and sleep. And I know Canada has integrated all of that um, into 24 hour movement guidelines. Uh, I'm Canadian and uh, Canadians like to follow the rules so it might not be too bad. But in the US, we didn't go that way. We, we purposely did not include sleep in the physical activity guidelines. And that was part of it. A lot of people don't like to be told what to do, uh, especially 24 hours a day. So um, I don't know if others on the panel would have comments on that because it, you know, with device-based measures, we can start kind of prescribing 24 hours a day to people, but will they push back on that? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for bringing um, Sonia's question up. That was Sonia Kalmeyer's question, and it's a really useful one because I think culturally in different countries, I mean, you say Canadians, the rule followers there's lots of countries where where, where where they really i think will push back so i i agree with you there um but joe joe's going to come in there yes i actually um ran some public engagement um workshops discussing the 24-hour guidelines who guidelines and it's quite interesting because it was small it was just it's 10 members of the public but there was a lot of pushback about 24 hours feeling very restrictive you know well, when can i do what i want to do there's there's only 24 hours in a day and we discussed each of the behaviors and sleep was the one that everyone had a problem with because they just didn't feel like the Canadian guidelines were realistic and that they were obtainable they said well that would be great to sleep for eight nine ten hours but I can't I have carrying duties I have work I have this and you know they want me to have regular sleep and good quality sleep but it's not necessarily something I can 
go to bed and say, I'm going to get nine hours of good quality sleep. So it's interesting that he raised that, Peter, because that was the biggest, yeah, the biggest pushback from the public. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's my frustration. I'm a bit of a rule follower and there's nothing more frustrating than waking up and realizing you haven't had enough of the sleep they really want you to have because what on earth can you possibly do about it? <laughs> it's very frustrating. Okay, Jasper. Yeah, I, um, I think it's that, that's a very interesting discussion. And to me, it illustrates very much the point that I, several uh, speakers have made before that there might be a difference in what we communicate versus what we have in our guidelines based on the evidence. Um, and I think this is one of those examples where and perhaps from the lessons learned from the Canadian example, um, well, do we really want to have the 24 hour with the three things integrated? Is that really a message we want to send? I don't think that changes anything about the evidence that we have that while well, doing that would be healthy for you. That doesn't change. But the question is more there, I think, about messaging and communication than it is about the evidence, um, which, again, makes me think, OK, well, perhaps some of that we really need to think of it from the other side and think of, OK, well, how what makes sense in terms of what do we tell people, both the public and the health professionals that are sort of often the intermediate there? Okay, I'm going to move on to another question. We have a nice question in there from Saud, Saud which is uh, like some suggestions and, and a question. Um, because we have talked a couple of times today about no matter where we get the evidence from and no matter how we make up the guidelines, ultimately what we're trying to do with those guidelines is to change behavior and, and to, 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 to you know, get the public to, to be active. And so I, I, I suppose the question here is about, does anyone think that a tool um, that could be used by the individual to motivate them to move, um, wh whether that would work and, and should, should consideration of that tool, if I'm reading the question right, be involved when we're talking about drawing up the guidelines? I think Karen might have been first. Do you want to go oh, first, I'm Karen? Sorry. I'm sorry, Karen. Go for it, Jasper. Yeah. Okay, you, you can have your chance after that. So um, I, I think this is a very interesting idea. And I know that there are a number of, of projects out there that are trying to do this, that are saying, okay, well, because we now can measure behavior so detailed per person, and then we also know that what the barriers and, and um, motivating factors per person are also different. So potentially we can use the fact that a lot of people have a phone, they have a wearable, and they can tell us about their barriers and, and um, preferences. Well, can we then develop device-based, tailored, individual messaging to them saying, well, okay, with your pattern of behaviors, you have the opportunity to do in this bit of time during your day, you have the opportunity to do more of this. So, there are studies going on at the moment that are trialing that. Is it the future? I don't know. Is it something that I personally think is really interesting to experiment with? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the personalized medicine has really opened our eyes to thinking a little bit more about how do we make the guidelines more specific and if we make them more specific and individual will that get greater adherence because people think this is tailor-made for me. Yeah. Okay. Karen. Uh, thanks, Marie. So I was just going to add that I think we need to do way more on the kind of behaviour change side of things. And I think for a long time, we've constructed guidelines and then said, 
hey, general public, here's the guidelines. But we know that people may perceive the guidelines to be unachievable, so that that might, could be demotivating for people. Also, the evidence that you, that's used to inform the guidelines, for example, reduced risk of cardiovascular disease in 20 or 30 or 50 years time is not what motivates people. It's what motivates people is better sleep, better mood, feeling less stressed, feelings of well-being. So the outcomes that we're all motivated by are not the outcomes that are communicated that are considered in the construction of the guidelines. So I think that we need to consider these two things quite separately. So the scientific guidelines is a is an academic exercise to use the best available evidence to construct, you know, consensus on what we know about the dose response relationship. But how we motivate people to change their behavior is a different question. And we need to stop kind of merging the two issues. One is a scientific exercise. The other is a is a behavior change exercise. Okay, thank you, Karen. Jacob? No, I, was, I was just thinking that uh, we talked about pushback uh, with sleep uh, specific uh, guidelines. And, and now we're talking about an app telling you now you have the opportunity to, to do this right now. Um, I, 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 I'm quite skeptical about this, uh, these individual agency uh, approaches. Uh, I think there's a lot of evidence suggesting that in general, they, they, have, they have failed in moving population level uh, physical activity. Um, so I think that we, we kind of have to uh, focus on um, policymakers in constructing environment, build environments that makes it easy uh, for people to do just a little, just sporadic physical activity, uh, taking the car to 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 uh, walking to for grocery shopping instead of taking uh, the car, and I think that is the most important message that we can deliver as physical activity researchers: that anything you do will probably do you some 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 good, and at least it will do you no harm. Yeah, that was that's useful to pair it back to the basics of what we're trying to do here. So very good, thank you, Jacob Manus. Thanks. Thank uh, Jacob. Uh, you 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 raised a really really important issue, and I totally agree with you that in order for uh, public health uh, and physical activity guidelines is part of public health to achieve large scale change out there, we are talking about upstream solutions, environment, and things like that. At the same time, I think sometimes I feel that. Public health uh, rushes to dismiss the individual level approaches because I think this have a time and a place as well, especially when it comes to healthcare systems, primary care, clinical interventions. All these are areas, all these are opportunities also to motivate, inspire, empower, support people to be more physically active. I agree that Ideally, we should make each and every city around the world Copenhagen. I mean, that would be my dream to have. I'd like to have a couple of Copenhagen's nearby because it's really far from me here in Sydney. But uh, I think this is not. Uh, this is very hard to achieve. So the, this environment changes in the environment that will uh, make the physically active option the easy option. This can take years and decades and decades and are very hard to implement because 
uh, there are financial interests, uh, there are all sorts of things, uh, car addiction, to name a few. So I think in, I agree that the changing the environment is the way to go, advocacy, policy is a way to go, but we should not dismiss individual level approaches, including consumer wearables and what we've been discussing about the trackers incorporating the most up-to-date knowledge based on physical activity guidelines, which I feel is a very important translation of uh, the physical activity guidelines work uh, we are doing. Uh, because those have merit and those can achieve change in some sections of the population. Thank you. Yeah, excellent. That we need to hit every level, not just not just individual policy, but but we mustn't throw one out for the other. I think a, a multi a multi pronged approach will work best here. Jasper. Yes, I wanted to say thank you to uh, to Jacob to bringing up a very important point that uh, a lot of the research I'm involved in is is trying to do that. But I also wanted to say that in Copenhagen, where I happen to do a lot of my research, where in many ways, the environment is very conducive to being active. We still have a lot of people that are not active. And so quite interesting, um, some of those individualized approaches are actually aimed at, well, while you live in an environment where you have all the opportunities, but you're still not being active, perhaps part of the reason or part of the explanation is because you don't know you have the opportunities because you're, you're in your habits you don't think about it. So sometimes I also, just like Manas just mentioned, believe that we shouldn't dismiss the fact that a little prompting might actually help people realize they can very easily change something in their behavior because they have the opportunities. So I think a good combination, uh, yeah, is 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 a way forward. Okay, brilliant. I think that's an appropriate uh, um, answer to finish on, that, that, that we, everyone has a role to play and that interventions at all different levels are likely to have the best benefit. So I think at this point, I'm handing back to you anyway, Manos, although your hand is going up. But I think according to my the, the great instructions you've given me, I'm now handing back over to you for some closing remarks. Yeah, thank you, Marie. That was an amazing session. Just like a, to build on Jasper's point, a, a personal story about the value of nudging. I haven't. I hadn't run for about two months. I met uh, a friend uh, who kind of told me you haven't run for two months. This week I ran three times. So a little bit of nudging can make wonders. Uh, thank you very much, Marie, again. And uh, I would like to hand it over now to Karen, our co-organizers uh, of this event. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, it's been a great pleasure to have you, to have so many of you. We had between 100 and 180 people at any given time. This is fantastic. So a big thank you from me as well to Eisbach for, for uh, putting the logistics, for doing all the work. And uh, uh, back to you, Karen, for the final remarks. So, yeah, I would like to say that I think this morning for me, uh, evening for others, has been a fantastic event. And it's really great that ProPath is leading all this work. And it's really great that ISPA's been able to be part of it. Um, this satellite event was initially planned to be in Abu Dhabi last week. And we decided to make it an online event in order to broaden uh, the availability of people to join. And the fact that we've had... 170 odd people at various times in the morning I think is testament to the fact that we made the right decision there 
I'd like to just thank all of the speakers and also our chairs and particularly Marie for facilitating that quite um, lively discussion. I'd also like to thank um, Tepi and Jimmy, who behind the scenes have done all the logistics on the ISPA side of things. And yeah, congratulations to all of the ProPass team. Many thanks for your presentations. And we look forward to advancing this agenda, not only to produce device-based device guidelines, but to consider how we message that, how we conduct surveillance and how we change behaviour at the environmental and the individual levels. So. Yeah, many thanks everybody for joining and um, yeah, keep an eye out for the next steps from ProPass. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcast or whichever app you use. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.